Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. My name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. And I'm delighted to be in the virtual studio again with my colleague, Sharon Bessel. Sharon, how are you? Hi, Anna Greta. I'm really well and I'm pleased to be here with you in our virtual studio, hoping that we will, before too long, be back in our real life studio and avoid some of the technical issues we've been facing wouldn't that be lovely? I wonder whose turn it is to drop out today. <laughs> I, I fear it's mine. But <laughs> <laughs> now, Sharon, we're we're in February. We're in our tasting plate of smorgasbord of of, uh, of episodes that might give insight into what we're going to do over the course of this year. Last week's conversation was very much in the stuff that I do regularly in healthcare communication, um, and I had a fantastic time talking uh, to to Carmel and to Mary. It was a really amazing conversation. How, how did you find last week's episode? It was a fantastic episode, Anna Greta. I unfortunately dropped out um, very early in the conversation, which was a bit devastating because I was enjoying you. the conversation and looking forward to learning from it and and asking some questions. But um, I was able to listen back to it after to the second part that I dropped out from, and it was extraordinary. I mean, we we always talk about the importance of communication, but here's a situation where it literally can be life and death. But that emphasis, not just on communication as talking, but as listening, I think is just so important and so powerful. Listening, not talking. Amazing stuff. So uh, we're back on Policy Forum pod this week. Policy Forum is, of course, produced by policyforum.net. We're based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The Crawford School offers graduate degrees and executive education programs across a broad range of fields, including international development, climate change, public policy, applied economics, and much, much more. If you're interested, you can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study to find out more. And so, Sharon, this week, what's next on our smorgasbord tasting place? Well, this week we have an incredibly important topic, although one that it can be extremely confronting to discuss. Over recent months, the issue of violence against women has been front and centre in Australia, and the issue is one that we discussed a number of times on, on the pod throughout last year, and it's one that we'll continue to discuss. In September last year, we spoke with Paddy Kinsley, who's the CEO of Our Watch, 
And Our Watch, as many of our regular listeners will recall, is an organisation dedicated to the primary prevention of violence against women and their children in Australia. And Our Watch is doing incredible work around changing the story around violence. In February this year, in partnership with uh, Women with Disabilities Victoria, Our Watch released their Changing the Landscape report. And this report acts as a national resource to prevent violence against women and girls with disabilities who are twice as likely to experience physical and sexual violence when compared to women and girls without disabilities. And as outlined in the report, 65% of Australian women with a disability have experienced violence. That is shocking. And the message is that while this picture is so deeply disturbing, it's not inevitable. The report provides a comprehensive description of the drivers of violence against women and girls with disability, the essential actions that prevent this violence, and the principles that should guide prevention work. And today on our Policy Forum pod, we we are going to be speaking to two extraordinary guests who are deeply involved in these issues and have been deeply involved in the creation of this report. And this episode, of course, will will go live just a couple of weeks out from uh, International Women's Day. And of course, violence against women is always an issue that is at the forefront of activism around International Women's Day, both in Australia and globally. And I think this conversation and this report is going to be so important to informing some of those conversations. So, Anna Greta, would you like to introduce our guests for today? I'm delighted to introduce our guest for today. It's such a great topic to be going through and so important at this moment in time. The conversation that we had with one of our guests last year with Patty Kinnersley really changed how I think about gender violence and and how we might prevent it in a much more meaningful way across our community. So our first guest guest is Patty Kinnersley. Welcome back to Patty, who joined us in September last year in that episode about uh, the work of Our Watch. She's CEO of Our Watch, the National Foundation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children. She joined Our Watch in 2015 as Director, Practice Leadership before becoming the CEO. She's a current board member of the Carlton Football Club and the Australian Women's Health Network National Board. She's previously been involved in rural northwest health Victoria, child and family services in Ballarat, Victoria, and the Ballarat Health Health Services. And some of the work that she's done is really changing deeply how we think about gender and gender violence. Alongside Patty is Jen Hargrave. Jen's a Senior Policy Officer at Women with Disabilities Victoria. She's a Research Assistant with the University of Melbourne's School of Population Health and has worked both at the University of Sydney and the University of New South Wales. In 2018, she was the recipient of the Ethel Temby Research Scholarship at the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services, through which she's investigated gender-sensitive safeguarding strategies in individualised disability service systems in Sweden, Scotland and England. Jen, it's great to have you with us too. So welcome, Jen and Patty. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So we're going to talk about the new report that you've just released, um, focusing on violence against women and girls living with disability. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But Patty, I, I just wanted to start by getting your thoughts on some of the events of recent months. We spoke last September. And since then, We've seen women, including, of course, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, really continue to take up the national leadership role, speaking out 
against violence against women and talking about the societal structures that enable and normalise that violence. And, of course, we've also seen a continued backlash against them in some quarters. We've also seen the announcement of mandatory age-appropriate consent education within all Australian schools from 2023. I just wondered what you think of the events of recent months and what you think this means for overall efforts to prevent violence against women and girls. Thanks, Sharon. I've been reflecting on this a lot in recent uh, months in terms of the community attitudes and sentiment and uh, what government's been doing and what everybody's been doing across the country over the last decade, really. And on one hand, we definitely, those of us working in the space and victim survivors, of course, uh, know that we haven't come far enough. On another, my reflection is that we're having these amazing conversations in the media, on the floor in parliament, uh, in workplaces, in sporting organisations about gender inequality, about violence against women, about um, the, you know, the really interesting conversation that Grace Tame brought to light with the side eye issue about women being silenced and having to smile, as it were, for a long period of time. So I think it's been a really interesting phase. And what's, I would say as a generalization, I guess, about, about the work of, you know, Janine Hendry and March for Justice or Chanel Contos or Brittany Higgins or Grace Tame is that, that we know that any really long-term change in social justice movements requires a whole range of actors doing their part. And so the work that they're doing to keep the conversation going in the public arena uh, and, and in effect putting pressure on politicians and our sort of structural change makers is a really important part of any long-lasting social change movement. And then we've got the role of organisations like Our Watch or um, Women with Disabilities where Jen is from, and we have quite a structured and important role to play as well. So I, I think it's really um, the sort of the general reflection is it's really important that all of the actors in our community striving to make the community a better place are doing their part, and I think that's what we've seen a lot of in recent months. So, Jen, if we move now toward that fantastic report that's been released on changing the landscape, in the report you guys are outlining the scale of the issue and we mentioned it in the introduction that Australian women and girls with disabilities are twice as likely to experience violence than those without disabilities. Could you explain to us perhaps a little about what forms this violence might take? Yeah, for sure. So women and girls with disabilities experience all the same types of violence that women and girls without disabilities experience. But then there's additional ways that we experience violence. So, for example, we're in a whole lot of different environments, often isolated environments. So respite services, disability group homes, mental health inpatient services, shut away from the broader community and justice systems in those environments. There's also issues around how we have uh, less access to response services so we can experience violence for longer periods of time. And then there's additional forms of violence that we can experience. For example, being discredited for having an intellectual disability, being told that uh, what we're saying can't be believed, having systems that entrench those things. So having family members manage our money and manage our decisions around things like use of contraceptives, having our mobility aids withheld being under-medicated or over-medicated. So in summary, I guess the key points are that we experience violence from more per perpetrators in more settings for longer periods of time. 
Jen, just to to follow up on on that, the report highlights incredibly powerfully how gender inequality and ableism intersect to create such high levels of violence against women and girls with disability. And you've just started to to talk through some of some of those issues for us. But I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about how gender inequality and ableism do intersect. Um, but also explain to us some of the other factors that intersect to continue to deepen and intensify the context of violence for, for women and girls that are living with disability. A good pathway into understanding that, I guess, is to think about all those touchstone issues that we understand drive gender inequality for women. So we think about the cost and availability of childcare and child support services, wealth for women with disabilities, that can be harder. So, for example, child support services might be more inclined to report anything to child protection for children to be removed. Being a mother with a disability may not be accepted and supported by the professionals in those services. We think of housing as a really key issue in Australian policy for women. Uh, Again, that's less affordable and less accessible if you're on a disability support pension or if you don't have a driver's license or if uh, you require modifications to the home. We still have the majority of housing stock in Australia not accessible and not even visitable for people who use wheelchairs. And that, for, you know, many women I speak to, drives their social isolation because they can't get the transport to their friends' houses and then they can't get into their friends' houses. Then there's, there's things like public spaces, not again, being accessible, so not being able to use a toilet if you go out for dinner. Then, you know, we know about women's economic parity, um, being paid less across their lifetimes, having less superannuation. For women with disabilities, it's much harder to get work and stay in work. And then for those of us on income support, we're living below the poverty line. So those are some of the, the key things that really drive that social isolation and support disempowerment that can then reinforce violence. Jen, we had an episode before this one of, of Policy Forum where we talked about health communication and the importance of medical practitioners in particular communicating very clearly with their patients. And when I hear you talking about all of these issues and and particularly when you said earlier that women with disability often um, have to navigate a whole range of medical services constantly when they have family members and others with control over their finances and, and some aspects of decision making. How important and how much of a challenge is communication for women and girls with disability? And and I ask that question not suggesting that, that those women and girls are, are not able to communicate themselves, but are wondering how much of an issue it is that the people around them don't communicate clearly or make assumptions about people's lack of capacity to communicate, just creating kind of further marginalisation and, and isolation. How much of an issue is that? That's something that comes up every time I talk to women with disabilities about their experiences of ableism and sexism having other people make decisions for them or other people not lay out for them what's involved in decisions. I feel like, you know, in the UK this has been a big 
topic of conversation because they brought in individualised disability care like we have with the NDIS earlier than we did. And when we brought in the NDIS, we talked about choice and control being something we wanted through individualised disability services. But we didn't have some of those discussions they had over in the UK around having informed decisions. So it's one thing to be able to make a choice, (laughs) but it's another thing to be able to have accessible information around what choices involve. So, yeah, if you're trying to make big life decisions like uh, should I report the violence I'm experiencing, having services you can go through and talk through the options and do long-term planning with are really important. If you're trying to choose a disability service that feels safe or raise concerns if it's starting not to feel safe, having people you can talk to who can go through clearly and calmly about what information is available. It's also been access to information and communication has been a big issue in the pandemic as well because uh, you've probably seen a lot of women with disabilities on social media celebrating things being online and that it makes it more accessible for us. And I'm in that cohort because I'm using the internet all day. But the people we're not seeing on Twitter and Facebook celebrating things being online are the ones who don't have access to information technology, either because they can't afford it, no one's taught them how to use it. They've Coming back to some of those themes you were introducing earlier, they've protected women with disabilities from the stranger danger that the internet might pose and not given them opportunities and skills to develop being online. Or many, many women I know are not physically able to use phones and tablets independently. And so it means uh, someone else in their life is passing the device to them or switching it on or operating it for them. So they don't have a safe, independent access to communication like that, which I think is concerning when you link back to what you were saying about being able to visit the GP, for example, if that's on telehealth and GPs being a very common place where we disclose feeling feeling unsafe or that we're experiencing contraceptive coercion or any of those sorts of issues, the doctor won't necessarily know who else is in the house and listening into that conversation. So those sorts of issues are are really big around communication. And with this report that we produced with our watch, I'm really proud that we made an easy English version so people can access that on the internet or request print copies where there's pictures and much more accessible language, so shorter sentences, shorter words, uh, and it explains key concepts that women might need to use to access the um, materials. Paddy, Jen's just, I think, painted an extraordinary landscape for us of the reasons why this report is so important. And the report, of course, is focused on prevention, preventing violence against uh, women and girls with disabilities. Our watch itself has been centred around primary prevention and we had an extraordinary conversation with you about this last year, which I certainly go back over uh, on a regular basis. I wonder if you might tell us what you mean by primary prevention and why it's so important. Yeah, thank you. Uh, And I'll just start by saying what a privilege it's been to work uh, so closely with Women with Disabilities Victoria and uh, a couple of advisory groups made up of uh, women with disabilities themselves to guide this work. Uh, and it's a sort of a, it's a principle of our watches, but also really in terms of primary prevention, that if we're going to uh, make a change for the better, you know, at a deep and lasting level in our society, then we we must always work with the people who are the most impacted or have the most knowledge or the lived experience. And so, uh, it's I'll just say that from the outset that it's been 
such a privilege and something our watch has learned a great deal from. So our role in primary prevention, uh, I think everybody has a really good understanding of front-end services, especially through the pandemic, the people who are supporting people at the front end who need help right now, whether that's in violence or in health or policing and so forth. But we also know that we, if we're going to reduce the amount of people needing services at the front end, in this case, women facing experiencing violence, that we can't just keep doing that. We have to figure out why those things are happening. We have to go back and go back to the source and then do some work on the source. So a lot of people use a sort of a visual image of we can wait at the bottom of the waterfall with the ambulance and go out and pick up people who are drowning because they've fallen into the waterfall and we pick them up at that end. But actually we also need to go to the top of the waterfall and say, this fence is broken up here, let's fix this fence, let's go back to the source and fix that. Now that's very simplified, of course, when we're talking about something like violence against women. Um, we've done a great deal of work over several years now and I think last year we spoke a lot about Change the Story, which is our national framework for the prevention of violence against women. And it, it brings together national and international research, people's experiences and, you know, 40, 50 years of sort of feminist theory and uh, experience, if you like, to say we can be say really clearly now that gender inequality playing out across every part of our life is what's driving violence against women. Uh, and in order to prevent violence against women, we need to address that driver. Now, to, to break that down even more, we say we need to address the condoning of violence against women. We need to address that men, men are controlling in decision-making and they're limiting women's independence. We need to really address the gendered stereotypes about what women can be and what men can be, and we need to promote healthy and equal relationships. And we do those things in all of the places we spend most of our time in our education settings, in school and sport, in our interaction with the media. And so the work of prevention is not necessarily with women or it is not the work of women's services um, and it is not the job of women. It is actually the whole society and it reaches into our policymakers and their need to apply a gendered lens to every policy, even if it's about roads. You know, what are, what's our policy about? How do we put a gendered lens across every policy we do in health, in education, in all sorts of ways? And then right through to what's the work we're doing in education settings, what's the work we're doing in workplaces, are our workplaces healthy and equal and safe? And so the Jenkins Review on the Parliament as a workplace or Respect at Work, which is about how we create safe and equal workplaces. So the work of prevention is all about the foundation work. How do we change the structures and systems and people's attitudes? So when it comes to violence against women, we're, we're saying that Gender inequality, sexism, attitudes and behaviours and structures and norms that put women as second but don't treat them as equal lay the foundation for violence against women to occur. Now, that's all women. That includes women with disabilities because one in five Australian women are women with disabilities. They're not over there. They're not them. They're not extra. They are us. And so women with disabilities face sexism in everyday life, gender inequality. What this work with women with disabilities has done is to really bring to light that women with disabilities also faced ableist attitudes uh, as well as sexist attitudes and the combination of those two things in every part of their life, and Jen fleshed those out so beautifully with examples, means that they are more than twice as likely to experience violence as women without disabilities. 
I, I just find this framework so extraordinarily empowering, the idea that we can shift from disaster response to proactive prevention and that we all have a role to play. We're going to take a really quick break right here and right now, and we'll be back in just a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Patty Kinnersley and Jen Hargrave. We're having, I think, an extraordinary conversation around uh, what we can do to contend with violence against women, particularly violence against women who have a disability. Patty, in the report, you've listed six different essential prevention actions, the first of which is to address the underlying social context that gives rise to violence against women and girls with disabilities. On a day-to-day level, what does that look like for individuals and schools, workplaces or similar institutions? I think it's really important that we, each of us, challenge our own ideas about women with disabilities. And this research is really clear that ableism in every part of our life is really underpinning violence against women and girls with disabilities alongside sexism and gender inequality. And so in in our schools, looking at have we set up systems that are that make schools accessible for girls with disabilities or in the adult education sector, are women and girls with disabilities really able to access our services? Not just a bit, but fully. Uh, in workplaces, when we look around, are we making our workplace accessible for women with disabilities? And that's, yes, it's women with, on, our, on our boards, but it's also in our policy structures. It's also in our um, social media and our interaction with whoever our target audience is, you know, do women with disabilities see themselves in our marketing? When they go for a job, are they, um, are they able to go for that job in a meaningful way? And so, and in certainly governments have a really important role in terms of addressing their rights, their responsibility to attend to human rights and the UN conventions around women with girls and disabilities. So I think the key thing here is that everybody in our society has a responsibility to, yes, examine their own values and ideas about women and girls with disabilities as an individual, but then also to look around their sphere of influence and say, how is that playing out for me when I'm as a sports coach, as a parent in my role in the workplace and so forth. Jen, can we dig a little more into to these issues at the policy level? And I'm thinking particularly about the the Australian Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation with people of people with a disability that's currently taking place. How important is a process like that in identifying, airing and then addressing the issues that you raise? How much how much hope do you place in that Royal Commission to begin to make some real shifts? 
It's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, when I think of the history of the disability rights movement in Australia, it began with a fight to deinstitutionalize people because of the violence and oppression that was occurring in institutions. And I think that was a debate that many Australians were pretty aware of, you know, looking back around the 80s. And then we had a bit of a public campaign and hope that community-based services were going to be much safer. Although for people with disabilities, many of us knew that that wasn't the case, that they were still sites of segregation and violence too often. And, you know, a lot of a lot of stories came to air around 2014. You may remember Four Corners did a story around sexual assaults uh, happening in disability group homes. And those have been, you know, a constant in our minds, as well as the violence we've been discussing that occurs in our in our homes with our families. So for me, and for many of us in this area, nothing that's coming out through the Royal Commission feels new. Of course, we're hopeful that there'll be action. But, you know, the Royal Commission's actually already released a report with specific recommendations around what needs to happen for people with disabilities in the pandemic. And we haven't seen, I sort of feel like it's a real-time test of how responsive our government is to the Royal Commission because those recommendations haven't been acted upon, although the pandemic is something happening now. And when I look at other policies coming out at this time, the Australian Disability Strategy has been renewed and produced and there's a draft violence against women and their children plan out I'm not seeing shifts there I'm not they look the same as previous plans that have come out and you know as Brittany Higgins said so well at the press conference a couple of weeks ago we keep seeing the same statistics come out again and again and again and where's the action Jen there's there's so much that we need to do in Australia as in many countries around the world to address gender inequality and particularly violence against women. And and as you and Paddy have both pointed out so powerfully, those things are so deeply interconnected and interrelated. But when I hear you talking about what's happening in terms of responses to the Royal Commission's recommendations around COVID-19 and the fact that we keep seeing the same thing, you know, I, I wonder how much of this is really given by attitudes of ableism and a lack of priority within policy settings to taking seriously the the everyday concerns of people living with a disability as well as the systemic failures and the structural issues and the attitudes of ableism that drive some of those problems. So from your perspective, what do we need to be doing to really address those ableist drivers of the problems that we're seeing manifest? I think Patty's commentary around incorporating a disability and gender lens into everything we do is spot on. If I bring it into sort of the policy development area itself, I mean, there's sort of one approach we can take is the way we worked with Our Watch, for example, to develop this resource, which was a real co-design process. And for people thinking about doing, doing a piece of work, whether it's research or policy development, with a disabled women's organisation or a, another kind of similar organisation, a group of people with disabilities, 
I think our watch's approach was terrific because we've been developing our relationship as organizations over many years and we knew we had some shared goals, which is a really good place to start rather than uh, approaching people when you've got a grant ready to go and popping up out of the blue and saying, let's go for some money, <laughs> you know. And then we did uh, a lot of thinking and consultation together over a period of time and our watch and WDV checked in at each point where we progressed on this. So it it wasn't a kind of a glossy fake consultation process. It was genuine co-design and that is a way governments can be developing policy it's a way the NDIS could be making its policy and sometimes the uh, co-design stamp goes on things when it hasn't been genuine. The other thing we can do, as Patty's indicated, is employ women with disabilities to be in our workforces and I think we've seen a real shift as it's as stigmatisation around being gay and lesbian and has reduced. We've got a much greater representation of people who are out as gay and lesbian in the workforce and they're shaping government policy all the time and you can see the impact of that it's it's much more visible and much more responsive to that community because they're there making the policy in senior public service roles in corporations and we don't have anything like that representation of women with disabilities in those jobs. So there's some great suggestions that are in the report. And, Paddy, another one of the actions that you've listed in the report is to engage men and boys to challenge the controlling, dominant, aggressive forms of masculinity that remain not uncommon in our society. I know you've commented a little bit about this earlier on, but where are we beginning to see some progress on this front? I'm an optimist, so I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to say yes because... Um, you know, our work in prevention, as I said before, um, involves working in the settings of our life. And at this point, many of those settings are still led by by men, uh, either on boards or in CEO roles or in government. And so the progress we make has to be made hand in hand with um, with those men. I think the other really interesting thing that I see has changed over in, in recent years is even when we released Change the Story the first time, we had to be quite careful about not talking too much about masculinity or um, harmful forms of masculinity that are that are, that are associated with violence against women, uh, because the backlash around that was quite um, damaging and you know as a risk for the work going forward. Now we are having much more open conversations about harmful forms of masculinity. Even uh, you know in the prime minister's speeches recently, he will talk about harmful forms of masculinity, and we must address those. So I do think men and boys are coming along. Uh, I do think the challenge for us is to balance that tension and that Jen referred to a little bit about, you know, we know what we need to do. We know what we need to do to prevent violence against women. We know what we need to do to, to extend that work to prevent violence against women with disabilities and also to prevent violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women or LGBTI women. You know, we know we have to reduce discrimination um, we, we need to give people the right to make their own choices. We need to reduce our controlling behaviours of people. Um, there are there are many many um, reviews and you know policy analysis and so forth. So the the tension between we must keep going, we must keep rallying, we must keep bringing people along. It's gentle long term work, etc. And actually, we do what need we do know what needs to happen, but it takes multi pronged, mutually reinforcing work from. Uh, you know, the Prime Minister to individual households. Uh, and so that's where it can be a little frustrating. But we will keep at it because a country like Australia, 
wealthy, very fortunate, very privileged, must do more to make sure that every Australian is not only free from violence but has the right to thrive and be a full participant in our community. Patty, just to follow up on that question and that framing, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of leadership and, and what sort of leadership might be constructive in this space, both from men and from women. But particularly, I'm interested in what sort of leadership we need from men in positions of influence to help us change this landscape. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think they have a key role. We know that nothing really happens unless leaders are right behind it and it doesn't matter what your issue is. Um, so that, that actually means that men taking the time to understand about gender inequality and how that's impacting on uh, women and the, the entire community and then also other forms of discrimination that are also impacting deeply on huge parts of our community. When you look at the drivers, the, uh, the ableist drivers, negative stereotypes about people with disabilities. So people in leadership, men in leadership, what are their views about people with disabilities? You know, what are they actually, when they and not ever employing somebody with a disability when the policies don't reflect that, when it's not in their comms, what are they telling the rest of the community? You know, they're talking about that women with disabilities are not as valuable, they're not likely to be in the workplace, and that sends a message to the rest of the community. And so I, I know that often people in leadership, men in leadership, say, well, I'm here to run a company, I'm not here to do that soft stuff. But actually the humans in our workplaces are the community and our workplaces, they're synonymous, you can't separate them. So we will have better workplaces, better education settings, better policy if we include the community, all of the community in those conversations and that takes leadership. It takes people to stand up, perhaps break away from their friends or the um, dominant thinking and actually take action, put a strategy behind it, put money behind it and take action. Patty and Jen, this has been such a, an extraordinary conversation and I think there is just so much here for us to take away, to think about and, and to act upon. And as we start to bring this conversation to a close, I'm, I'm just thinking about the, the National Plan for Ending Violence Against Women and Their Children in particular, but also other initiatives that, that are underway. And Patty, last time you were on the show, we talked about that new national plan. As we wind up today, I'd love to hear from each of you about what you'd like to see uh, coming out of this work that you've done through changing the landscape, how you'd like to see that in informing the national plan and associated policy responses as we move forward. Um, Patty, perhaps we could begin with you. How would you like to see this work and issues facing women and girls with disability be incorporated into the national plan and into associated responses? Look, this national plan will be far more evolved in its representation of taking an intersectional approach, that is, you know, considering the multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination that impact on certain groups of women, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, women with disabilities, gay, lesbian and trans women, older women. Uh, it, it will have a clearer connection uh, and it will make more visible the need to make sure we connect the plan about violence against women and children to other key plans and platforms. And so that's really important. Uh, what we haven't seen yet is the detail in the action plan, uh, but it will be very important that there is both every action takes account of the intersecting forms of discrimination. So no funding goes anywhere without um, there being some attention given to how are you going to take an intersectional approach to that funding. So that's sort of embedded as part, but the other part is what's the specific work around reducing violence against women and girls with disabilities? Uh, certainly our watch is hoping to keep working in that space and working in partnership 
with women with disability organisations. Uh, and I should say that um, Carolyn Fumato, who's the CEO of Women with Disabilities Australia, has been a part of the uh, National Plan uh, Advisory Group. And so we're certainly hoping that the, so the advice that she's been feeding will be present. Jen, can can we wrap this amazing conversation up with, with your thoughts on that national plan for, for ending violence against women and children that, that's under development? And as, as part of hearing from you on your thoughts about the plan, I'd, I'd also love to hear your thoughts on the extent to which women and girls with disability have been genuinely consulted. Patty was pointing out the importance of, of the national CEO being represented, but more broadly, are we seeing genuine consultation across the country with, with women and girls with disability as part of developing the plan? As someone who works in a Victorian organisation, I haven't been as involved as women with disabilities Australia have. So I should probably leave it for them to comment on on the whole. But I will say it does feel like a repeat of previous processes and that we're not really progressing at much speed in the consultations I've attended I feel like we've covered the same material we've been covering for 15 years and not seeing much different come out the other end I think this report though is a really good place for people to head to for the latest data and research to make a case for what action needs to occur um, around prevention and around response and I think it presents a whole lot of opportunities around what the National Disability Insurance Agency could be doing, the National Quality and Safeguarding Commission that oversees the NDIS's quality and safety, um, disability policies, um, what's happening with kids in schools around prevention programs. It, it, it lays out a whole lot of ideas for people um, where they could be picking up things and, and inf- uh, informing their budget bids. Yeah. Jen, we so often hear that comment that that you've made today that you know, we keep having conversations but things are not changing. This work that, that you have done um, and that our watch has done through changing the landscape gives us a way of moving forward, seriously changing the conversation and putting action in place that will really shift things significantly for people and in a positive direction. So we have the plan. We just need to act. And thank you both so much for sharing this with us today. Thank you for the ongoing work that you do. It has been such a pleasure to talk to both of you today. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you very much. Anna Greta, that was such a powerful conversation. When we talked to Paddy last year, you know, I I kept reflecting on the conversation and I've worked on gender issues for a very long time. But I think this work that our watch is doing is is incredibly groundbreaking and that emphasis that they are placing on prevention and on everyone having responsibility is just so incredibly important but bringing in the work that they they are now doing with Jen and her colleagues to ensure that that we're also thinking about violence against women and girls who are living with a disability is so important because this is an issue that I think many people know about but just doesn't get the prolonged attention and action it deserves.
Absolutely. It's one of the comments that Jen made early on in the conversation is how so much of this is hidden. Um, it's hidden from, from our day-to-day conversations and it's hidden from, from public discussion and debate. And it's so extraordinarily important that this report gets as much attention and discussion as we can facilitate. And I agree with you completely, Sharon. I really found the, the primary prevention strategy that's proposed by our watch is empowering, asking us all to consider the relationships that we have with the people around us and the way in which we can all contribute to change in a positive way. So it, it's such a powerful message. And so today was a, a really extraordinary conversation. Yeah, it really was. And listening to Jen talk about some of the issues that women and girls with disability face in their lives on a daily basis from you know, those, those, those issues she talked about of being within institutions that are often not listening, not responding to, to, to their concerns, needs and interests, challenges with, within families, control over people's lives. You know, these things are really very confronting to hear about. And it is so important that we talk about them. Mm, absolutely. No, um, I'm sure we, I, I would love to speak to both uh, Jen and to Patty again at some point this year. It would be fantastic to see this conversation uh, ripple through the conversations we'll continue to have this year. Yeah, it certainly goes to the heart of the ongoing conversation that we're having, Anna Greta, about valuing care. Absolutely. But I am also very conscious that some of the things that we discussed today are likely to have raised issues for some of our listeners. Mm. If you or someone you know is impacted by sexual assault, family or domestic violence, please do call 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or visit their website, which is www.1800RESPECT.org. Dot au. And if you are in an emergency situation, please do call triple zero. We'll leave all of those details in the show notes for today. And we'll also leave a link to the report um, that we've been talking about today, changing the landscape in our show notes. Um, it really is worth a read. And as Jen said, it's available in multiple forms. So it really is very accessible. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on our third episode of 2022. Hard to believe we are already at the end of February. We are absolutely thrilled by how many people have been tuning in and we have been delighted by some of your lovely messages. So thank you so much. If you're enjoying the show, please do tell your friends and family and colleagues all about it. You can reach out to us and we love to hear from you on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or via email on podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group. You just need to type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us. And please do join the discussions there. And we'd love to have you subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform it is that you like to pod through. We will be back next week, but from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. From Anagreta Hunter, I'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.